I'm Dara. And I'm Bridget. And I have nothing to say right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's the theme tonight of Two Girls in a Theory. <laughs> um Apparently, we should have gotten all of this recorded about how we wanted to die. No, we shouldn't have. No, we shouldn't Probably have. for a good reason. Considering we we're about to talk about an actual murder. <laughs> but this is true. Right. So, yeah. So. Very good thing we didn't get any of that conversation on record. <laughs> oh, my God. <gasps> but if you only heard it, then you would have all been like, what the fuck with us. So, anyway. Tonight's episode... Is about the Somerton Man. If anyone's ever heard of it, if not, this is your first time. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, any comments, concerns, remarks we should address before getting into it? I have no idea. I don't know anything about the case. Okay. Do we have any announcements this week? That I ripped my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I am ugly and I know it. <laughs> no, what is it? I am ugly and I'm proud. I am ugly and I'm proud. That's my. Good but what's off. funny is I actually did rip my pants. Oh, did oh you really? <laughs> I really did. While y'all were fucking talking about World War Three, I was nervous picking at the fucking <laughs> pants and ripped a hole in them. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! You really did. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Does any of our listeners know where I can still get yoga pants? Not leggings. Yoga pants. What's the difference? Leggings are skin tight. Okay. And yoga pants have like the nice little flare at the bottom still. And they have the like this little flap. Oh, okay. Okay, then you yeah. can't fucking find these anywhere anymore. I've been holding on to these bad boys <laughs> since like ninth grade. I mean, you have to find them online nowadays, right? I mean, any anything you want, just, you'll just have to find it online. Does Lululemon have yoga pants? I don't know what a Lululemon is. Okay. Yeah, all right. Let gonna... me just see, like, <laughs> you've never been to Lulu. Hold on. It's like marketed everywhere. That's all they spend their money on. Really? I've never really. I don't think so. No, I don't know what a Lulu lemon is. Girl, we're gonna go to Lulu Lemon sometime soon. I mean, I'm not gonna buy anything, but I'm just okay. <laughs> apparently, show you. apparently, I can still buy these yoga pants at Walmart. There you go. So, problem solved. Okay. Well, I guess we should get all of the lightheartedness out of the way because we are talking about a murder. Well, that I actually part, don't know if it's murder, guys. I really have not looked into it. This was Dara's episode. So. It's it's an unsolved mystery. It's we can't say for sure that Ooh, it's murder. I guess we should start off with that it's unsolved and yeah. don't end it like last week's episode with me, where I'm like, oh, just so you guys know, <laughs> unsolved, <laughs> unsolved. I guess that's true, right? So yeah, this is pretty unsolved. Um, it's still unsolved, and um, so we can't say for sure that it's murder. We can't really speculate on anything else um you know the trigger warnings are the usual there is death involved and uh what else i think that's really it there was death involved there's no description of torture or murder or anything like that um so let's crack into it let's do it all right let's do it 
Um, so my sources for this case came from Wikipedia and from, I have, let's see. Oh, the Smithsonian Magazine and CNN, surprisingly. So, um, on December 1st, 1948, at 6.30 a.m. in the southwest part of Adelaide, South Australia, on a beach near Glenleg, Glenelg, I'm sorry. Uh, there was a body of a man found lying in the sand across from a children's home on the corner of the Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. Uh, he was found lying on his back with his head resting against the seawall with his legs extended and his feet crossed. So he looked like he was asleep or relaxing on the beach. It is believed later on that that man died in his sleep and found next to him was an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. And when searching his pockets, investigators found an unused um, second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. There was also a bus ticket from the city that may or may not have been used. It was hard to tell with the condition of the ticket found in his pocket. Uh, and there was also a U.S. manufactured narrow aluminum comb, a hefty... <laughs> what? <laughs> hefty? Who am I? Uh, a half-empty <laughs> packet of juicy fruit gum an army club cigarette packet, which held seven cigarettes of a different brand, Kensita's, which is a Scottish brand of cigarettes, and then a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. When witnesses came forward, they said that on the evening, evening of November 30th, they saw someone resembling a dead man lying on his back in the same spot in position near the children's home where the corpse was later found. Uh, there was a couple that saw him around seven, and they noted that they saw him extend his right arm to the fullest, fullest extent and then drop it limply, which is very specific. Like, it's a very specific movement, and it's also very weird, but I guess that is something you make note of to the police. Yeah, it is. Okay. So <laughs> then another couple saw him at around 7.30, 8 o'clock. Um, this time the streetlights had come on and they said they didn't see him move during the half hour that he was in view. He was in their view, but they did say that they thought his position had changed. So another witness came forward in 1959 and reported to police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park, uh, Summer Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. And the report was filed by Detective Don O'Doherty. According to a pathologist named John Burton, John Burton Cleland, uh, he described the Somerton man as looking Britisher, quote, Britisher. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that meant. I laughed when I read that. I'm like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> looking, quote, Britisher in, a, in appearance, and he thought he was around 40, 45 years old and was in, to uh, quote, top physical condition. So when police found the Somerton man, he was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, uh, brown trousers, socks and shoes, a brown knitted pullover, and a fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly American tailoring. So all the labels on his clothing had been removed. Oh, wow. No tags, no, no nothing. Not even like a tag that says, that tells you how to clean it. Like all the tags are gone. No hmm. labels. Which is, <sighs> you had, you had to go through a lot of work to do that. To be so undescript. Indescript? Undescript. I have no idea. One of the two. <laughs> so it's like, okay, that's kind of like telltale sign of something. Um, what was unusual about his whole getup 
was that he was not wearing a hat, which at the time in 1948, that was very unusual, especially for men. Okay, wait. With the tag thing. Yeah. Um, maybe he just cut him off himself. Like, he, whenever he buys his clothes, maybe he just doesn't Right, like a tag. Like, like it's a comfortability thing. Right. Oh, the second a tag touches me, I'm ripping that shirt off. Yeah, like it gets really annoying on yeah. your skin. That, you know, that's definitely, that could be one reason why. But it also, at the time, um, people speculated that, it, that he might have been a spy. Because this oh, is the end of World War II, okay. 1948. So people are like, maybe he's still spying on the Germans. Or maybe the Germans are spying on him, something. And he's trying to take off these tags. And he doesn't want people to know that he's affiliated with anyone or anything. Blah, blah, blah. And so he's just trying to be very, very, like, incognito. Or something. You're looking at me weird. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how a clothing tag could affect that. But I was not there, so I can't. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. That was just a speculation yeah. I read. So I was like, oh, cool. But like, <laughs> I don't really. It, it, it's probably, it just has something to do with, like. I mean, yeah, there's definitely something. some strange bizarreness to it. Yeah. But that's just <laughs> funny. <laughs> a funny thing. Like, if somebody just casually walked by and was like, oh, I'm going to take your tags. Like, right. that's a weird thing to do. Also, listeners, if you hear any creaking or movement, it's my chair. Anyways. Or Ginger, because we're recording at Bridget's place. So and you know how she loves to make an appearance. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You can continue. So he was not wearing a hat, which was unusual for a man in 1948 to be out and about without a hat. And he had no wallet. He was clean shaven carried no ID and led police to believe that he had committed suicide, which when you see a scene like that makes sense. Finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person. An autopsy was conducted and the pathologist suggested the time of death to be around 2 a.m. on December 1st. The pathologist report said the following quote, the heart was of normal size and normal in every way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. Uh, There was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the the food (laughs) in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times its normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules um, revealed under the microscope, acute gastritis hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion to the brain. (sighs) All all that to say that the pathologist concludes, uh, quote, he says, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural, unquote, from all of that. (laughs) So the main cause of death that was a prime suspicion was poisoning. But the last meal that the Somerton man had was not believed to be the source because his last meal was a pasty, which is a pastry. Okay. Another, I believe. I should have looked that up, but it was a pasty. I'll look it up later. Okay. Other than that, the coroner couldn't figure out how he died, what caused his death, etc. And the body was embalmed in on December 10th, 1948, after the police were unable to get a positive ID on the man. So, jumping to January 14th, 1949. Okay, so, sorry. A oh, yeah. pasty is a pastry case 
traditionally filled with beef, potatoes, and onions. So an empanada. It looks like an empanada, yeah. Actually, that looks pretty good. It really does. Well, that's cool. That was his last meal. That's not bad, right? (laughs) Not bad at all. Okay, good for him. He had a he had a meal. Yeah, a whole a whole meal. A whole meal. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Uh, January fourteenth, nineteen forty nine, at the Adelaide railway station, staff discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, just like the Somerton man's clothing's uh, clothing labels were removed. Um, and they found that it had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on December 30th in 1948. Excuse me. Many believe that the suitcase belonged to the body found on the beach because inside there were clothing, uh, cufflinks for his shirt, an electrician's screwdriver. Okay, so this, this part's a little weird. They found an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, short sharp instrument. In my mind, I thought of a shank. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. A <laughs> it, little shiv. It sound, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a shiv, right. Um, a pair of scissors with sharpened points. A small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors. I don't even know what a small square of zinc is or what it does. But apparently, it's thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors. <laughs> Um, okay. and, oh, and a stenciling brush um, as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. R- it, okay. Yeah. So quite a lot. <laughs> a lot that may or may not make sense with each other. Because when you look at it, it's like one of these things is not like the other. And one of these things does not belong. Yeah. But what the hell is it all doing in one place? <laughs> so they also found, okay, this is the other the other part. They also found a thread card of Barber. Barber is a British luxury lifestyle brand. Um, A thread card of Barber, orange waxed thread, quote, of an unusual type, unquote, that was not found in Australia, but this orange waxed thread was the same thread that was used to repair the lining in a pocket of the trousers the dead man was wearing. So this part is going to come in handy, remembering that orange waxed thread all tags on the clothing had been removed but police found the name t keen on a tie the name keen on a laundry bag and keen on a on an undershirt and three dry cleaning marks um the numbers were 117 17 slash 7 slash 7 those are the three dry cleaning marks and they weren't the first one no none of them sound like dates so I don't know what any of those numbers mean, um, but it wasn't really that important. So police believe this to be an overlooked detail. And it's important to remember that wartime rationing was still enforced. So because this is the end of World War II, but clothing was still difficult to acquire at the time. And that does make sense. It was a common practice to use name tags, especially with the military and everything. Um, and it was also common when buying uh, secondhand clothing to remove the tags from the previous owners. But the police found it unusual that there were no spare socks found in the case and no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused uh, letter stationery. So they were thinking, oh, he is coming home from the war or he's coming back from his last place of deployment and he's a soldier. So okay. why aren't there like any other important types of clothing like the socks or under? Hello. 
Wow. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) That was my ring. In case y'all heard that, which I'm sure you did. (laughs) It was so loud. (laughs) Um... So the the search expanded into the UK and it was concluded that no Englishman named T. Keen was missing from any English-speaking country. All that could be garnered from the suitcase was that the front gusset and feather stitching on a coat found in the case indicated it had been manufactured from the US. So the coat um, was not import was not imported, which meant that the man hadn't been to the U.S. or bought the coat from someone of a similar size who had been to the U.S. Then an inquest was made into the Somerton man's death, conducted by coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland. And it happened a few days following the discovery of his body, but was but it ended on June 17, 1949. Cleland was the investigating pathologist, so what happened was he re-examined the body and he discovered a, a number of like new things that actually happened in this body. Um, he noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean <laughs> and appeared to have been recently polished rather than it being used, like walked around and all day, no scuff marks, no like, like it, was, it wasn't dirty, you know? Like it, it never even like, stepped into a puddle mm-hmm. there was no sand in it even though he was on the beach like there was no previous um indications of sand in the shoes or anything the soles were perfectly new it was like what the fuck um and let's see he, where am i did you have been clean yeah appeared to have been recently polished rather than in a condition expected of a man who'd been wandering around that area all day. He also added that this evidence fit in with the theory that the body may have been brought brought to Somerton Park Beach after he died. So that accounts for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions, which are the two main phys- physiological reactions to poison. Cleland speculated that as none of the witnesses could positively identify the man they saw the previous night as the same person discovered the next morning, there remained the possibility the man had died elsewhere and then had been dumped there or like posed there because of the way that he was sitting down and people that passed by looked like or saw him and thought he just looked like he was relaxing there, mm-hmm. like on a beach. You know, you're like, you don't think twice about it. But he, people thought, thought like, oh, he was poisoned somewhere and they like, scrubbed him clean of all evidence of all like dna evidence that could trace it back to the person that killed him then it just like took his body and just dumped him there so um the coroner stressed that this was purely speculation so not okay not definite um as all the witnesses believed it was quote definitely the same person unquote as the body was in the same place and lying in the same distinctive position uh he also found no evidence indicating the identity of the deceased deceased uh early in the inquiry cleland stated quote i would be prepared to find that he died from poison um and that the poison was probably a glucoside and that it was not accidentally administered but i cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person unquote so despite all of that he could not determine the cause of death of the identified man unidentified man and cleland remarked that if the body had been carried to its final resting place then quote all the difficulties would disappear End quote. So then here's the part where it gets even more saucy. Okay. So all of that is happening, right? 
police are investigating. Who the hell is this guy? How did he die? None of where this did making, he die? Where did he die exactly? Because where are his fucking tags? That's gonna bother me. <laughs> the tags, right? Because that is such a meticulous detail. Yeah, and now the polished shoes is gonna bother me too. Right, like just like the Atlov's pass. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> where you were like, where are their eyebrows? <laughs> where did he go? <laughs> it's gonna bother me. Well, this is the part that's gonna bother you a ton more. Love it. Okay. <laughs> just full disclosure. <laughs> Okay, so around the same time as this inquest that had already been made, <laughs> so there was <laughs> a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Tamam Should printed on it was found in a fob pocket sewn within the dead man's trouser pocket. Now, remember the orange waxed thread? Mm -hmm. That was used to sew the fob pocket in the trouser pants in the dead man's trouser pocket and then inside of it was this little rolled up paper that just had tamam should printed on it not even written printed so public library officials called in to translate the text um and then they identified it to say it has ended or it's finished and this um specific phrase was ripped out of um the last page of the book called the Rubaiyat. It was written by Omar Khayyam. Um, the verso side or the, the back side of the paper was blank. So it was definitely the last page, probably. Um, at first, after knowing what the translation of that phrase meant, police thought it was definitely a suicide, um, but it still made no sense. Mm -hmm. So police began a nationwide search in Australia to find a copy of the book that had similarly blank uh, that had a similar backside. Because the police weren't sure where to start, they took a photo of the paper, released the public to the image. Nope. Released the image to the public. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, a, it's just such a long, like, synopsis of this case that I'm, like, getting tongue-tied. Sorry. So they released the image to the public. Okay. So following a public <laughs> appeal made by police, um, a copy of the Rubaiyat from which the page was torn was found. <gasps> I know. Okay. So a man showed police uh, in 1941 an edition of a translation of the Rubaiyat published in New Zealand. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, leader of the initial investigation, referred to the man who found the book by a pseudonym and has never officially, his um, identity had never officially been released. He just wanted to stay anonymous. Um, and that man had not considered that the book might be connected to the case until he had seen an article in the previous day's new newspaper. All right. So some local newspaper sources said that the book was found. Actually, hold on. I went ahead. My bad. <laughs> I lost my place for a second. Okay. <laughs> um, so the man had not considered the book was going to be connected to the case until he saw an article about it in the newspaper. And this is where I was supposed to be. <laughs> there are some uncertainties about the timing in which the book was found. Some uh, local newspaper sources said that the book was found a week or two before the body was found. But the timing is significant as a man is presumed, based on the suitcase, to have arrived in Adelaide the day before, the day before he was found on the beach. Okay. Uh, it sounds a little confusing, but bear, bear with me. <laughs> um, so if the book was found one or two weeks before, 
before um, the Somerton man was discovered dead on the beach, then that would suggest that the man had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for much longer than what was speculated Mm -hmm. initially. So about the book, the theme of the Rubaiyat is that, uh, quote, one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends, end quote. (laughs) Okay. Right. And that's just, that, that was the quickest synopsis of it. That's, that's what the book is. Except for that one part that was found in his pocket. That's it. Tamam should. That said it's, it's ended. It's ended. It's, this is finished. But but it's about living life to your fullest and having no regrets when it ends. So, so okay, knowing that right, the poems. It's it's actually a, like an epic poem. Uh, the poem's subject led police to theorize that the man had committed suicide by poison. I guess now we're just going to put two and two together with whatever we have, right? Yeah. But no other evidence corroborated that theory. <laughs> so the book was missing the words with the words Tamam should on the last page, which, ha- which had a blank uh, reverse side to it. And okay, get this. It gets even deeper. There's mic- there, were, there were microscopic uh, scientific tests that indicated that the piece of paper from the page torn, that the piece of paper was from the page that was torn from the book. So it did come from that book. Okay. However, also in the line, in the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters. Uh, The second line has been struck out, a fact considered significant due to its similarities in the fourth line and the possibility that that it represents an error in encryption. In other words, on the back of this book were these uh, five lines of just capital letters Two of them struck out, but it was code. But no one has been able to crack this code. Okay. Or figure out why it was there in the first place. Or what the fuck it means. So code experts were called in um, to decipher the lines, but unsuccessful. Just couldn't do it. So in 1978, uh, following a request from ABC television's journalists, uh, the Department of Defense cryptographers analyzed the handwritten text. And the cryptographers reported that it would it would be impossible to provide a satisfactory answer if the text were an encrypted message. Its brevity meant that it had insufficient symbols, quote unquote, from which a clear meaning could be extracted and the text could be meaningless um, and just the product of a disturbed mind. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> a phone number was found in the back of the book. And this phone number belonged to a woman named Jessica Ellen, uh, nicknamed Joe Thompson. So she was interviewed by police and Thompson said she didn't know who the dead man was or why he would have her phone number and um, didn't know why he would choose to visit her suburb on the night of his death. Okay, right. However, she also reported that at some time in late 1948, uh, an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and asked a next-door neighbor about her. The detective on the case would later remark that Thompson was being evasive or that she just did not want to talk about it, which led him to believe she knew the Somerton man, um, but was hiding that fact. So when she was shown a photo of the Somerton man's body, she visibly showed an unexpected reaction. Um, She was shocked and, dis- and she was uncomfortable, which further led the detectives to believe that she not only knew him, but may have had some kind of relationship with him. 
So fast forwarding a little bit in 2014, uh, Thompson's daughter was interviewed on 60 minutes and she also said that she believed her mother knew the dead man. What? <laughs> okay. Right. Well, it kind of makes sense to know the man if the man had your number in the back of a book that he might have liked that you might have given him as a gift. That was my theory. That's just my theory. But I thought they said the book was like from a library. It was I wrong? No, uh, yeah, no, it was from a lot. Wait. It was checked out by an anonymous person, wasn't it? Uh, I, or am I right. just making something up? No, no, no. Public library officials. Oh, no, no, no. Um. Oh, I see where, okay. It was because public library officials had been called in to translate the text. The, what Tom oh, should so I, okay. right. Um, but it was, I had belonged to another person. So my theory would not fit that part or that part would not fit into my theory because it belonged to someone else. Um, so, but my theory is like this, this woman knew this guy, something happened that she's not supposed to know about maybe. And she was sworn to secrecy to like tell people she never knew him. So that's why she's saying, you know, I don't know this guy. What are you doing in my house? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was just weird. I mean, yeah, this case is really weird. Yeah. So the way that it sounds mm -hmm. is that it definitely could not have been one person yeah. that killed him if it was a murder. Right. But which leads also to her being so secretive on why she wouldn't want to talk about what happened. I want to know. We're denying why she yeah. denying that she knew him at all. I want to know what sign happened for them to realize she was uncomfortable because in my opinion if i'm being questioned and you pull out a picture of a dead body any dead body i'm going to be uncomfortable well right so i want to know what she showed to make them believe that they were she was uncomfortable mm -hmm. because she knew him versus that she's being shown a picture of dead bodies right um because like i don't, I don't know I also don't get that in TV shows. Like when in in TV shows, because the actors like are told to do a certain thing, so I can see a lot of times like something shady. Right, right, and that's true. But yeah. like in this, it's I'm. It kind of sounds like they just think that she's knew him because they already had that idea. It sounds biased. Okay, okay, is what I think. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but and yeah. also because her daughter came forward and was like, "No, I think she knew him." Mm -hmm. What? Why? I want to know why, girl. Right. Give me that tea. <laughs> We're gonna have to watch that interview, I guess. <laughs> it was recorded in 2014, and it yeah. was on 60 Minutes, so it's got to be on YouTube. Somewhere. Yeah, because obviously, if 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 the daughter thinks that even she knew him, mm -hmm. then that means she had to have talked about him to her. Is or what met I would him. think. Or had met him at some point. Right, like even in passing or something. Yeah. Right. I have a lot of questions. There's only more questions from here, I think. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> um, so in 1949, Jessica Thompson requested 
uh, that the police not keep a permanent record of her name or release her details to third parties because she thought it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation to be linked to this case of the Somerton man. Yeah. So the police agreed, um, but it later brought up more investigate more investigations. Thompson was frequently referred to by various pseudonyms, including the nickname Justin, which that one's kind of the most popular pseudonym, um, or other names such as Teresa Johnson, nay Powell. That's such a specific name. It's not even anywhere near Jessica's real name. Okay. I don't know why they... This part makes no sense to me either. Mm -hmm. But I guess because she just didn't want to be associated with the case. Mm -hmm. Fine. Understandable. It's just like... (laughs) um feltis oh i think i cut that off uh but uh a person named his last name is feltis in 2010 claimed he was given permission by thompson's thompson's family to disclose her names and that of her husband proper prosper thompson nevertheless the names feltis used in his book he wrote a book about the somerton man um all of the names in his books used pseudonyms okay so feltis the author of the book on the somerton man also stated that her family did not know of her connection with the case, um, and he agreed not to disclose her identity or anything that might reveal it. Thompson's real name was considered important because it may be, because her name could have been the decryption key for the code that was found on the back of the book. Okay. Yeah. When she was shown the plaster, okay, so they, um, coroners took a plaster cast of the Somerton man's body because they wanted to identify him, but there were, his dental records gave no uh, indication of a name or, you know, anything like that. So they took a plaster cast of his body and because it was a dead body, you can't just keep it lying around in yeah. the air, right? This is going to decompose. So um, Thompson was showed the plaster cast bust at least of the dead man's body by ds lean and thompson said that she couldn't identify the person depicted from the cast which yeah i guess that makes sense kind of um but according to detective sergeant lean he described her reaction upon seeing the cast as quote completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint unquote (laughs) so that (laughs) when she saw the cast Mm mm-hmm Okay. So it sounds like well, she definitely definitely recognized this uh-huh. person, but just never gave a name. Mm-hmm. Um, so in an interview many years later, Paul Lawson, the technician who made the cast and was present when Thompson viewed it, noted that after looking at the bust, she immediately looked away and would not look at it again. Okay, so yeah, she definitely she knew. She knew him, right. Thompson also said that while she was working at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, Sydney, Australia, during World War II, um, she had she had owned a copy of the Rubaiyat. Okay. A a connection. Sorry, <laughs> we're making connections. Anyway, in 1945 at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she had given it to an Australian Army lieutenant named Alfred Boxall who was serving at the time in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers. Thompson told police that after the war ended, she had moved to Melbourne, but in Australia it's pronounced Melbourne. (laughs) 
So sorry, I just didn't want to butcher that. Moved to Melbourne and married. She said that she had received a letter from Boxel and had replied telling them, telling him that she was now married. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like they were like. I guarantee that phone number in the back of the book was originally for him. I That's what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, where was I? So subsequent research uh, suggests that her future husband, Prosper Thompson, was in the process of a of obtaining a divorce from his first wife in 1949 and that he did not marry Jessica until about 1950. But there's no evidence that Boxall had any contact with Jessica Thompson after 1945. So as a result of their conversations with Thompson, police su- suspected that Boxall was the dead man. It okay. kind of makes sense that way, right? Like she had a copy of the Rubaiyat. She did I say that she gave it to him? Yeah, she had given it to him. He was an Australian army lieutenant who was in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers. I mean, he sounds like he had a high position. You know, it just sounds like it all fits. That she knows him and that maybe his his name is Alfred Boxel. Yeah. So um, in July 1949, Boxel was found in Sydney and the final page of his copy of the Rubaiyat Reportedly, a 1924 edition published in Sydney was intact with the words Tamam Shud still in place. Okay, so that just shot me down. Anyway, um, Boxel was now working in the maintenance section at the Randwick bus, de- bus depot where he had worked before the war and was unaware of any link between the dead man and himself. So in the front of the copy of the Rubaiyat that was given to Boxel, Jessica Harkness had signed herself Justin and written out verse 70 from the book, which is quote read as, um, indeed, indeed, repentance oft before I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence of pieces tore. That's what she wrote out from the book. And that sounds like another code to me because I don't know what that means. Okay. Yeah I, yeah. I need you to reread that little poem for me. Okay. I'll read it again. It goes, indeed, indeed, repentance oft, bo- oft before I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence, a pieces tore. That's, if you want to read it. <laughs> Maybe I'm also not, um, reading it in the rhythm it's supposed to be read in i don't know but that's what she wrote apparently and that's from the book i don't i don't know you can find it on wikipedia too do you have any ideas oh we're gonna search this up (laughs) i gotta i have to google to make sure i know what the word means first which word repentance An action of sincere regret or remorse. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before. I swore. But was I sober when I swore? That's my that's my favorite line. Was I sober? And then and then came spring and rose in hand. My thread bare repentance of pieces tore. I mean, it just sounds really like elegant I mean, too, but I have no idea what it means. 
Okay, so if you like break it down, so mm-hmm. like the first sentence saying, indeed, indeed, repentance oft before, mm-hmm. saying that she had regrets before. Yeah, like had regrets. Sounds like she either spoke of them or not. Mm-hmm. I swore, but was I sober when I swore? Is it like I had regrets, but do I have regrets? Was I just... Yeah, it sounds like she's questioning whether or not she... Whether or not she did the right thing of whatever she's regretting. Yeah. And okay. then... And then and then came spring and a rose in hand. So, then so it time sounds moved like on. time moved on, rose in hand, fell in love. Mm-hmm. My threadbare pen, penitence... I can't pronounce things. Penitence. A, a pieces, pieces tore. Wow. Now I have to look up pen, penitence just <laughs> to make sure I'm looking, thinking of the right thing. Well, you do that pen, real fast. How do I spell it? Pen. P E N I T. Oh, there it is. N T. Oh, yeah. So penitence. The action of feeling sorrow and regret of having done wrong. My threadbare penitence pieces tore. Threadbare. So she's showing, showing her sorrow. Showing her sorrow. And fell apart. Yes. That makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But why choose that line? Mm-hmm. Why choose that part of the poem? That's verse. Because, because it sounds like... It sounds like she was in love with whoever she wrote that about. And, Originally... And she was heartbroken. Heartbroken because yeah. she... Sounds like she fell in love with them... Regrets happened. Mm -hmm. Nothing happened. Right. Got married to someone else. Mm -hmm. Her husband, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then she fell apart because it wasn't what she wanted. Is what I'm getting. So who, which one was the one that got away? Her or him? So, Mm. because it sounds like this is what it's referring to. It's like, you were the one that got away. Yeah. I'm writing this on the very front page of the book to give to you. So that's the first thing you read, and you'll know exactly how I felt. That's mm-hmm. what it sounds like. That's exactly what it sounds like. Did we just, like, solve... Did we just crack a riddle? A riddle? A, a part of a case? Did we? <laughs> did, did we? we? Can we mm. Where'd they find this again? Where, where'd she... They Her her book? Her writing? In the front of the copy of the Rubaiyat that was given to Alfred Boxall. A woman named Jessica Harkness had signed herself as Justin, which is believed to be Thompson, and um, wrote that verse. So it was, this verse was found in the copy of Alfred Boxall's mm-hmm. Rubaiyat. Mm-hmm. So that's, so it's, it really, it just, it sounds like she was in love with him, didn't work out, wrote that. Which is, yeah. Those were like her last words to him. Oh my God, that's so sad. This is even more or sad. Or maybe it's like something where it's like she she fell in love, but nothing could happen maybe because of the positions that they were in. Like maybe because he was so high up and it's the 40s. So And it was the war. Mm-hmm. So like people got pulled away because it was the war. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe she cheated on him while he was at war and, and she right. regrets it. Anything. And starts falling apart whenever she sees him again. Right. Like there's a lot of There's a lot things. of things. Like there's a happen. lot of a lot of things that that one little little section 
of a poem. That's so say. true. Right. Because you can interpret it a thousand, a thousand different ways. ways. And it's not like we'll ever really know what happened because it's, it's still unsolved. Yep. It's not like I can just track her down and be like, hey. Right. Well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the next part I'm getting to. <laughs> so after that poem, it's, it's now just kind of sad because it's like, oh, my God, that was like your one that got away. Um, so what happens now? As late as 1978, there were flowers that would be found on his grave. But no one knew who it came from. No one saw the person that would leave it there. There weren't any cameras. And why would you put cameras in cemeteries? But no one, no one saw who would put it there. Anyway, so the code that was found in the back of, of the book that has yet to be cracked, and the unknown man is buried with his tombstone marked as unknown man. However, as early or jumping ahead of time, according to CNN. There are DNA tests that are being taken from the Somerton man and um, parts of like his speculated family to see if there would be a match and to see if there would be a name that they can come up with and an image. So mm. that's a really cool thing. Um, cases still unsolved, though. So that is the case. That would be really man. cool, though, if they were able to link, like to finally put a name because right. you'd be able to figure it out at that point. Right. And, and like find his records and stuff and go as far back as to before he died. Wow. Yeah. That's the case of the Somerton man. Unfortunately, we haven't solved it yet, but I think we may have done but something about it. we cracked a code. We, I think we may have cracked a code or at least interpreted correctly the poem. Yeah. Maybe. And maybe figured out part of that story, but yeah. See, yeah. that's one of those things that I would definitely have to sleep on. Like, I'd have to read it before bed. Right. See see if my brain can just can figure it out, it out while I'm sleeping. Right. Like, what does this mean? Give yeah. Me, give, give me a sign. Brain. Figure it out. Right. Yeah. I don't know. There's just a lot to go off on, but. Well, let us, let us know what you guys think. Yeah. I can't really say that that's the saddest or worst ending we've ever had. Yeah. I think that's probably. I think we've definitely had some sadder much worse endings yeah much, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. i think we're on a good note yeah so yeah. sign so, off yeah guys that's that's it <laughs> um you know if you have anything to say on what you think that poem could mean or really anything related to the case we would love to hear it if you have a copy of the rubaiyat let us know yeah maybe we can borrow it maybe you can tell us where to find yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I think I'd, I'd like to I read like it. I like poetry. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to read and understand what the hell any of this means. Yeah. So let us know. TGAAT podcast at gmail.com. Become a patron at patreon.com slash TGAAT podcast. All of that. Good stuff. Facebook, Instagram. We're still getting all that. Twitter. <laughs> we have an Instagram. I'm just currently blocked from using it, but you used to follow it. You can still like it. Right. Uh, there's just nothing I can do about it right now. We're going to have to figure it out. We'll but, figure it out. But we're getting there. Yeah. I should not be put in charge of social media ever. <laughs> I thought I would be okay with it, but I was not. Anyways. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, guys, uh, don't kill people. Please don't. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.